customary law, right? And saying like, well, this food is still dirty. I'm not going to eat this. And so Paul's like, no, dude, eat whatever you want. But if, they're, if they haven't reached at a place where their conscience hasn't freed them from being able to eat all meat and all meat is clean for them, uh, don't judge them for that. And so even on some of the issues where it is clear, right? Where we would say, man, the Bible seems to really point this direction on this issue. Even then, Paul is saying like, yeah, like we fully know you can eat whatever. Jesus literally said, and I make all foods clean, right? Um, and yet even in the midst of that, what Paul's saying is, hey, we know this is true, but I'm still going to treat you with gentleness, even on a matter that isn't as debatable. Because there are certain things we'll talk about where the Bible is a bit clearer on, and even in those things, we're called to go come at each other with gentleness, understanding that person's faith is weaker, or they just haven't necessarily arrived at that place to fully understand the depths of the way the gospel is being, uh, uh, the gospel is coming at a certain issue. Does that make sense? And so, um, even if you feel like, no, I'm definitely right on this, you still approach in gentleness. I was going to add to that, as we also go out and witness to people and are the salt and the light. The people that I know in Sedona, I mean, I have great conversations with my Christians down there, and some of them are incredibly liberal, some of them are incredibly conservative, and the people that I try to or I have a better ministry with are the people that we have a dialogue and we're, it's friendly. And even afterwards, even if we disagree, we can still go out and um, you know, have a beer together, so to speak, have dinner together, and maintain and continue a relationship. Yeah. yeah. Great. So today, some goals, so you guys know what we're going to be going, doing. We're going to try to go systematically through the Bible, and, and in particular where God interacts with government or God kind of um, helps push towards the formation of certain governments or basically just where God interacts with government is probably the better way to say it. Um, so that's what we'll first do. So first we're going to go through the Old Testament. We're probably not going to hit every single place God interacts with government, right? And But we're going to try to hit some of the really key moments. And there's, there's, there's going to be a few ideas throughout the Old Testament that I think are just good things for us to know. And that, but there's going to be two that we hone in on, um, and it's these two ideas. One is called shalom, all right, and the other is the flourishing of society. Shalom and the flourishing of society. Um, and there will be some other things in there as well. And then after that, we'll take a little bathroom break. Uh, we'll see how we're feeling. We might not take a bathroom break. And then we're going to just read everything in the New Testament together on what it says uh, about the government in the New Testament. And we will be able to read everything um, in the New Testament on the government, because there's not a lot. So, does that make sense? Any questions so far? All right. And I'll, I forgot to kind of just intro, but if you have questions as we go, like, ask them. Like, so this is the time. The jars are only for, like, if you have something specific, you felt weird about bringing it up, or something we'll save for next week. But if you just have, we reverse, we say something, you want clarification, ask it right away, okay? Yeah. But the, also, the jars are designed for people who... You may not want to ask. Right, exactly. But also, the next week, correct me if I'm wrong, is going to be more of a Q&A. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, all next week will be Q&A pretty much. So, right now, if I'm, like, reading to you about, you know, King David, and then you're like, hey, but what about abortion? I'm like, I don't know if those link. But, uh, <laughs> so that might be a thing to save till next week. Um, and, and honestly, ask those any kinds of questions you want. So, uh, so that's today's goal. So, we got to start in Genesis. All right, we have to start in Genesis. If we're going to systematically go through the Bible, we have to start in Genesis. Will someone for me read on their papers Genesis 1-1? And that's all for now. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
That was amazing, Curtis. Um, uh, but this is this is really important for us to look at because uh, God created everything at first, and as you go through the creation story, what is, what is it that God says every time He creates something else, or every time the day is over? What does He say? It's good. Good job, guys. Reading your Bibles. And then, yeah. So he said that's good. So there's this idea that God created things, uh, and it was good. It was as He intended. Okay. And so let's look. Will someone read one twenty six at what God wanted for humankind to do? Anyone could read just just as one twenty six on their paper for me. Then God said. Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That's good, and I think that is really uh, important for us to know, because I think a lot of times today, in our cultures, they try to say, hey, you know, uh, essentially they say it like this, rest in peace Harambe, right? But they say, like, this is not... Uh, humankind's earth to to run, right? This is not his uh, domain. But if we want to have a biblical view, we need to know that God created you and I to have dominion over the earth. That doesn't mean you can do whatever you want to the earth. That means that far more. It means that we're supposed to take care of, we're in charge of the earth, just much like workers are of a business or a storefront or something like that. And so... Um, I think it's also important to note, in, in those Genesis accounts, especially in those verses, did you guys notice anything that said, and Adam will be president of the United States of Eden? Did you, did anyone, did they, <laughs> hey, if you see that, no. You didn't see that because there probably was no form of government in the garden. Right? There, was, there was not going to be a form of government in the garden. I think, personally, that... There, people would have ran things. People would have been in charge of like making the roads and even libraries or whatever it might be. But government as we know it today did not exist in the garden. Okay? There would probably be some form of government, but it would, probably looked very, it would have looked very, very different than what we see government as. But there's still no picture. So we have to make a note of that. There's no picture in Eden where God said everything is good of a government. And so that makes the questions of governments a little bit difficult for us as we go on. And I'd even add, that's even, including like a theocracy, based by basic definition, the garden was not a theocracy either. And so it wasn't God had this as deity, right, and then had these people that were the intermediaries or ambassadors to, to bring that to the people. God was in full communion with everyone in the garden. There was no sin, so communion and shalit, no. Communion was not broken yet with God, and so everyone interacted directly with the Father, okay? And so even theocratic government uh, didn't exist in the garden either. It was just perfection. We don't even have, and we won't have anything like it until So then this, this huge event of history happens. It's Genesis 3. And if you re- go through and you read Genesis 3 on your own, you'll get this story of the serpent tempted, tempting Adam and Eve to sin, and they sin, and they hide from God. God is grieved because sin has now entered the world. As soon as they sin, sin was in Adam and Eve, and then sin is going to be passed on to you and to me. 
All right, that's, it's passed on. You're born sinful, okay? My daughter was born sinful. If you don't believe me, come babysit, all right? <laughs> and so, we're, and that's another important thing. I think our society today says, no, 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 we're born broken. We're born sinful. That's just a reality of our world. And so, so Genesis 3 happens. The world is broken. And now we need to introduce this idea of shalom, which we see in creation. So there's this, how many of you guys have heard that word shalom before, right? You usually hear a Jewish person or kind of like an annoying Christian say it, and, uh, and, uh, S-H-A-L-O-M, um, and there might be some different spellings on that, but that's, uh, the spelling I've been using, S-H-A-L-O-M, is that what I said? S-H-A-L-O-M, um, so this idea of shalom is this is this word that we translate in English as peace. Now, shalom in the Bible is so much more comprehensive than just the word peace. Shalom is this idea that everything is as it should be. Okay? Everything is as it should be. So, uh, for humankind, that means our relationship with God is as it should be. And so in the garden, we get the picture of them walking with God, whatever that looked like. Um, we get a picture in the garden of Adam and Eve. Their relationship with each other was as it should be because there was shalom. They weren't blaming each other for the sin they committed. They were, you know, loving on each other. They're walking around naked. It sounds great, right? <laughs> and so there was shalom between humankind. And there would have been shalom between any other humans that came about if there was no sin yet. And then there was shalom between humankind and the planet. Right? There's shalom between humankind and the planet. They knew how to take care of the planet. They could just ask the creator easily and easily here. They named all the animals. I don't think the animals were trying to kill them or anything like that. Um, and so there was perfect shalom in the garden. And shalom is this idea throughout the Bible that things are the way they should be. That things specifically, too, that are the way that God intended them to be. All right? So not just our opinion on how they should be, but on what God intended for them. Now this is very, very important for a few reasons. I think the first thing to know is that we need to know that humankind, we have broken shalom. We are not living in perfect shalom. No one in this room is living in perfect shalom. Randy's close, but that's about it, all right? Um, and so... Um, but it's important to know that we are broken and we are sinful as humankind because that means, too, that our governments are going, no matter how well intended, no matter if they are praying to Jesus and hearing from the Holy Spirit right then, they will have the effects of shalom at some, or broken shalom at some point. The effects of sin at some point. Because until Jesus returns and completely restores all things, as we see in Revelation 21, there will be a breaking of shalom. And so it is important that we know this because uh, I think often we can become very disheartened or we, become, we can become very convinced that a particular system is going to bring shalom. Mm -hmm. And it will not. It might help restore shalom. It might make things as they should be better. But at some point, I guarantee you, there's going to be some human that's going to come in there and mess it up. 
and their name's probably Anthony, right? Like, I, like I mess up Shalom just as much as the next person, uh, even if I don't try. And so that's one good thing to, to know about Shalom. The other good thing to know about Shalom, I think, is this, is as Christians, we see Shalom is this, we see things as they should be, hopefully. Hopefully we can look at the Bible and we can say, hey, this is how God intended something to be. So when there's a law that comes about that wants to mar this shalom and break this shalom even more, we as Christians can stand up and say, no, we, we need to fight for shalom. Like, we need to fight for the way God intended things to be, if that makes sense. And so one th- we do have to be careful with that because I think that is going to always be in tension with um, some other values that we're going to bring into this, but I think it's still good for us as Christians to always be seeking the shalom of the world around us. Um, uh, so, and then I do want to say, when you have political angst, when you're like, man, this president or whoever gets elected in this election, let's say hypothetically people are saying that, um, <laughs> kidding, that people are really saying that, um, <laughs> it's just going to go bad, it's going to be terrible, it's just not going to be right. Like, that's true. Like, there's a part of me that that's completely true, no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, because shalom will not be restored till Jesus comes back. And so, when you feel that, you should say, Jesus, come back. Jesus, come back. Mm-hmm. Every leader in your life is going to fail you because they are broken vessels, right? Until Jesus returns. Yeah, let so, me yeah. add just as, a, just as a thought experiment, if I may. Yeah. So, if you go back and you look at the definitions that I gave you for capitalism, socialism, and communism, okay? Um, now, in America specifically, the great devil is communism, right? I mean, we, we, we were at war with it, we did everything we could to destroy it. Uh, it was the complete antithesis to what it meant to be an American, that type of thing, right? Um, now, if you look at those definitions, and so let, let me read capitalism. So an economic and political system which a country's trade and industry are controlled by private owners for profit rather than by the state. Uh, communism, political theory derived from Karl Marx, advocating class war, leading to a society in which all property is publicly owned and each person works and is paid according to their abilities and needs. Now, just by, by these distinct systems, now, if you remove sin and you put shalom into either of those systems and it is fully as it should be, either one of those work perfectly. Like, the problem with capitalism and the problem with uh, communism is sin. The problem is that shalom is broken in the midst of those. And so what we do is we have to navigate, well, which one of these kind of makes us screw up least, okay? Like, which one of these hopefully gets us closer to what it's supposed to be? But the reality is, again, it's not the system's fault, right? So stop blaming. It's the, it's, it's the way sin corrupts humanity and corrupts the systems that's the problem. Communism could be great. If there was no sin, who cares if we share everything? Because there's no greed. We all don't care. Everything's great. We're in perfect communion with God. It doesn't matter. But because of sin, we desire things that, you know, we covet our neighbor's wife, we covet our neighbor's stuff, and on and on and on. And so people get greedy in power positions, people get entitled, and so they don't do anything, and on and on and on in different systems because of sin, they're broken. Okay, so again, just to emphasize, the need is for a restoration of Shalom. So, not, not the finding of the perfect system. Yeah. So, uh, we're going to keep going in, throughout the Old Testament. So, we get up to Genesis 15. 
and God finds this guy named Abraham, or Abram, actually, and they say, hey, man, you need some ham in your name. Also, can't eat ham. Um, <laughs> not weird. Uh, so there's this guy, Abram. That's actually God. what he introduced was Ha. So he's yeah. laughing at him. So anyways. Uh, That's what you guys are going to remember from this class. <laughs> so we have Abram, and Abram has a wife named Sarah, and they, through these two, God creates his people, who, who are going to be called Israel. And they're the people of God. And so Abram, his name turns into Abraham. They have a son named Isaac. And through these people, they're going to be the people of God. But it's still not a nation or a government yet. It's just a family, right? And a, and a kind of messed up family at that. And so eventually Isaac has a, a son, Jacob. And Jacob uh, has a bunch of sons. He has 12 sons. And there's one son in particular named Joseph. Right? And so Joseph lives his life. He has these dreams, telling his brothers, Hey, guess what? In my dreams, I was ruling over you. And they said, Guess what? We're selling you into slavery. Um, <laughs> and so Joseph gets sold in slavery. He's a slave in Egypt. Um, and he's taken into Egypt and he starts working for this guy, Potiphar. He becomes this guy's right hand man. Uh, Potiphar's wife falsely accuses Joseph of rape. Uh, Joseph gets thrown into jail, and through a series of events, Joseph finds himself before Pharaoh, the, the king, essentially, of Egypt. And Joseph finds fair favor by interpreting some of these dreams Pharaoh had been having and giving him good advice um, with Pharaoh. And so Joseph becomes like second in command of Egypt. And I, I just want to note this story because... God orchestrated these events. He allowed these bad things ha to happen to Joseph in order to put him in charge of a government, essentially. And if you, as you read the account of Joseph, it sounds like he was basically king of, of Egypt, which is not the country that God designated for his people. But if you read the moral of the story, it was that God had ordained all of this to happen so that Joseph could do it. And I just think that's interesting to note. And so uh, Joseph is here in Egypt. Uh, Egypt is beginning to thrive because of um, Joseph's advice. His brothers, though, are struggling back from where they are, kind of what, where Israel will become. And so his brothers come to Egypt asking for food. Joseph says, yes, come on in. Just let's live here as a family. And so Jacob's family, which is Joseph's family, all live together. There's about 70 of them, it says, to start. And they live in Egypt, and eventually Joseph dies. Um, and I, there was a, a note, I know when we were talking about this, that Randy noticed about the, the, the story of Joseph that I think is just important for us in politics, too. Um, Remind me. It was God is in control. And so, yeah, tell well, us Well, I was just thinking that you were saying that, too. Yeah. From Jacob's perspective, it's got to be, what's going on? My son is dead. Yeah. And as we interpret, you know, the po political systems... We all get very uh, vitriol with if this person doesn't get elected or if this person doesn't get elected, it's the end of the world. Uh, I like uh, your sermons on anxiety as it relates to politics. Uh, we're an anxious society, but we don't know if, and jump in here, Anthony, if I'm not hitting that key point, but is we, we can't see over the mountains, we can't over the timeline of what God is doing. We're sitting down here just going, oh my gosh, I can't believe you know, he's going to get elected or she's going to get elected, the world's going to end, where we have to have, you know, he's in control, as Anthony said, he knows what's going on, 
it's his plan, and that's the focus, as Anthony started this with, that we have to be focused on his kingdom uh, in the world, not just as Americans. Yeah, I, 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 huge. And this uh, this story, and and much like a lot of Old Testament stories, like we immediately want to like try and find, you know, our identification within that specific story. And a lot of times, when you start applying a story like Joseph's uh, to the political process, specifically in this voting deal that we're kind of into right now, we're saying like, man, I need to find the Joseph candidate, right? Like, and so with what that usually generally means, I need to find like the the most Christian guy or gal. Uh, and we're going to want them to be uh, in the biggest power. And listen, that is, that is not a bad rubric to use, right? Um, but I want to caution us uh, as to saying we need to find the Joseph of 2016, okay? Because we live in a, in a pretty different situation in culture, right? So Joseph, he was appointed by insane godly means to get to his position. Um, getting elected in this country... And doing anything in this country is not that, right? I mean, at the end of the day, God does appoint all of us, appoint every leader over us, and we'll get to that a bit later. Um, but the reality is, is that, man, this is, I mean, their politics are just a different beast today. And a lot of stuff you hear, uh, like, if you just look at, like, statistically, there's no way 100% of politicians, except for Bernie Sanders, are Christians. Like, it's just, like, <laughs> it's just, it's just impossible. Like, and our entire nation is, like, only 80%, and, th- and that's, you know, 60% of them are lying. And so there's just no way all these people are Christians, and yet when they run, right, yeah, all of a sudden Jesus starts getting dropped like crazy, two Corinthians starts getting dropped like crazy, all sorts of things. And I'm not trying to say whether or not any of our kids today are Christian or not. Maybe they are. But, we, but don't just fall into that easy trap of because this person has said the name Jesus a lot, that means, oh, they're going to do what Joseph did for Egypt, okay? That's just... It's just silly. We ha- it's just far more complex than that idea. So. Yeah, I think it's extremely prideful to like think you know what God is doing with a particular person when this was written by Moses, who was hanging out on the mountain with God at the time. You know, so I I really love both those points. Um, so Joseph, he gets this point. He's been ruling Israel for for many years, and he dies. And then uh, Exodus describes the people of Israel, as this happening to them, it says that they were fruitful and they increased greatly. They multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Okay, so this is what's happening to the people of Israel, the people of God, and they are pretty much referred to the people of Israel uh, now because of Jacob, essentially, whose name got changed to Israel. Um, And they are just growing in Egypt. They're growing in this land that's not the land that, that God had for them. It's a foreign land. They're growing um, there as, as immigrants, really, over hundreds of years, I, th- I believe. And so this is going on. They're growing in number. Joseph dies, and the Pharaoh, this new Pharaoh, he doesn't know Joseph. He didn't grow up with Joseph. And so this Pharaoh sees the people of Israel, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, and he says, he starts to get worried because he starts to say, hey, this is a different people group. These aren't Egyptians. These are, these are Hebrews. We need to oppress them. We cannot let their number increase. Well, the problem was, with that was is God had a different plan. And uh, they, they increased all the more. And then so Pharaoh says, hey, let's all the, the midwives, all the Egyptian midwives, kill uh, Hebrew women's sons when they're born. And we'll just kind of snuff out this line. Uh, of Jewish people, Hebrew people. And um, 
in spite of that, sons are still being born. In spite of that, they're still growing in number. And one son in particular you can read about in Exodus um, is floats down a river on a basket, which, come on, what? And, uh, um, and he gets adopted by Pharaoh's family, essentially. And he grows up as kind of like a son of Pharaoh. And it's this Hebrew, this Jewish boy, Moses, who is saved and incredible movie, Prince of Egypt, watch it. Um, lots of singing. He likes the Charlton Heston one. I try to tell him. People don't know who Charlton Heston is. Um, and so there's this guy, Moses, and through a series of events, um, God raises this man, Moses, up to liberate these people that have been oppressed by Egypt. Also, what had happened to the Hebrews in this time is uh, the Pharaoh said, let's enslave them. Let's let's enslave them fully, let's oppress them, let's, be, let's de- deal shrewdly with them, he says. And, um, and you know, he, they're killing, they're beating um, these slaves. And so God, hear, he, he sees the blood, it cries out to him. All throughout the Bible, you see that blood of humankind, even if they're not Jewish, cries out to God because he hates suffering. And he, he raises up Moses to liberate the people. And Moses... Uh, through really the power of God, liberates the people of Israel. God saves Israel, right? And so Moses, basically what happens is they just walk out of Egypt together. So they walk out of Egypt, they get to the desert, and Moses is sitting there with a huge population that is now Israel. And Moses is like, what do I do? Because everybody's coming to Moses and they're saying, Moses, we have this problem. Can you help us before we just tell Pharaoh and he just kill us? But can you help us uh, deal with this uh, situation? And so Moses, would go, he would just judge every single person's problem and he would uh, verdict, uh, you know, give a verdict and, and they would live that way. But then Moses' father-in-law, who is not Hebrew, uh, uh, his name is Jethro, he sees how Moses is doing this and like any good father-in-law says, hey, you're being an idiot. Uh, you need to set up judges, and, and you need to set up people to govern, and you need to, to, to put this um, not just solely in your hands. And so will someone read Exodus 18, 24 through 26 to see how Moses implemented Jethro's idea? So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Now this is interesting for a few reasons. One, Jethro had just a good idea, right? It was a good idea. He said, hey, get some judges, get some guys in here. Uh, so it's a little bit easier for you to govern. Jethro is not a Hebrew. Jethro is not a person of God. We don't know if he believed in God. We don't know if he stayed with Moses. We don't really know exactly the end of Jethro's story. But God allowed this guy, Jethro, to come in and set up the first government of Israel. And I just think that's interesting because I think we so often as Americans fight over, like Vince was saying, what form of government is best. And in this moment where someone brings a form of government up, God is silent. And this was back when God used to, you know, I think, talk out loud all the time, you know. 
uh, especially to Moses. And I think he was silent because the, the how they brought Shalom about didn't matter as much to God as that they brought Shalom about. And so then God saw this. And, and for like the next, I think, several, like thousand or so years, um, they live with judges this way. But then God does something else. God comes in and he brings his law. So God's law, which we pretty much know and summarize as the Ten Commandments, was not around before Jethro made this decision. It was not around yet. So Jethro, or so God comes in and he speaks to Moses on Mount Sinai and he gives the, the law, which is, uh, by most people's counts, 613 laws. And these laws hit on everything. They told you how to worship. They told you how to treat each other. They told you how to do everything. And so Moses and Jethro essentially came up with the form of government, but God gave them their constitution. Right? God gave them their constitution. This is um, Torah that we see in the first five books of the Bible. How to live. All right? And so um, Israel, again, kept running by judges, chiefs, and elders. And um, yeah, so eventually... Uh, through all through another bunch of events, Israel gets their own land and they become a true nation. Right? They come in and they drive out the Canaanites and they take the land of Canaan and they become the, the people of Israel by the power of God. You can read through that uh, about that in Joshua. And so they're continuing to live uh, by God's law, which is kind of broken up for, for our sake. Uh, into three categories. There's ceremonial law that was like, how do we deal with God? How do we interact with God? How do we interact with the priests? There was judicial law, and that was just like, how do we punish each other for doing wrong? And so there would be like, hey, if you did this, you're dead. If you did this, you're dead too. And like, that was pretty much the thing. Um, and, uh, and then there was uh, God's moral law, which is very similar to just morality we have today. It was like saying, don't lie, don't kill, um, even celebrate the Sabbath. Um, these kinds of things uh, were the moral law. And so there was three, three things about God's um, law there. And so they continue to, uh, to live out this law, but they actually um, do a pretty bad job. And there's this idea uh, called being a display people. And throughout the Old Testament, God actually, you see his laws. He says, hey, I want you to be set apart. I want you to be holy for I am holy. And so God wanted Israel to exist so that the whole world, so all nations could look at Israel and say, man, you're a picture of the one true living God. And so Israel were a display people to the whole world. And eventually, um, Israel, or not, it happens pretty quick. Moses is getting these rules on the mountain, and he comes down the mountain, they're already like, hey, we found a bunch of gold, and we're worshiping it. And uh, it's just terrible. And so this constant cycle happens, though, where where Moses or God's uh, prophets speak to the people and say, hey, stop worshiping a gold calf or this or that. And Israel goes, okay, I guess we, we'll stop. And then they go do something else. And then they go turn to gods of the other nations or they turn to this or to, turn to that. And so they constantly, over and over and over again, fail at being a display people, at, at showing what shalom looks like because they're broken, because they are sinful people. So Israel, they, they say, hey, you know what the problem is? It's not that we're sinful people. 
<laughs> Forget that. They say, we don't have a king. And they go, and they look like, they're like, look at that Cana over there, and this country over there. They all have kings, and the, all the people are getting whooped in those countries that have kings. And that's why if we just had a king, then we would not be sinful. And, uh, and so they think having a king rather than their judge-like system is going to be what saves them. And so we see a prophet named Samuel his interaction with God over this idea of instituting a king in 1 Samuel uh, verses 6 through 9. And so we can see what is God's heart towards them changing their government and specifically turning it into a monarchy. Will someone read that for us? But the thing displeased Samuel when they said... Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then, obey, obey their voice, um, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the, the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Great. And so we got, have this guy Samuel who was kind of acting as a judge at that time. And he was acting as a judge. And so when the people of Israel come to this judge, this one of the, the, the godliest judge, I think, uh, of all time, in my opinion, um, and, and they say, we want a king. He says, no, I don't, no, God is our king. Because they were very much living in a theocracy that had a judge-like system in it. Okay, so it wasn't even a full theocracy in some ways because they had these judging-type systems. And so he goes to God, and it's interesting just to note that God says, Hey, this is a bad idea. You're right. This is completely a bad idea. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're really rejecting me. Um, But let the people do it. And I just think that is so interesting. Because I think so often I see a lot of us really argue with our society or mostly with our Christian brothers and sisters. Hey, no, that form of government or that law or that thing is just a a, a bad idea. We shouldn't do it. We need this kind of thing to save us. And, And we should not allow anyone to put this kind of law into place. And God himself with his people who are the apple of his eye as it's described in the Old Testament. He said, hey, listen. They're wrong, but I'm going to let them be wrong. All right? I just think that's interesting to know. Um, And so I think uh, sometimes we're like Israel, that we want a king, or I think we sometimes name it a president or a a type of law or a type of um, party or political system, and we convince ourselves that's going to be what saves us when the problem at the end of the day is the human heart. Yeah, uh, I think like uh, what you see here throughout the Old Testament, and again, hopefully you're seeing how you know, this idea of, under, uh, of understanding our place in the political system today, I mean, it's rooted in the history of the world, right? So we see God's interaction with people. Um, but that to be said, what you notice is uh, when, when they establish, so they come in Exodus 20, he gives the law. I mean, they're operating in a very theocratic 
type of government, right? So you had, they had the God, they had their deity, and then they had people that were implementing God's law after Exodus 20. And so theocracy was kind of abounding. What you get is this kind of slow drip of the world corrupting God's people, right? So before even kings get there, we have the judges, and, and not the judges as in, hey, the thousands of judges, or people judging people in judicial matters, but actual, like, the judges from the book of Judges. And the constant refrain from that story is that they began to do and buy into the gods and the customs and the people uh, and their traditions of the people outside of the kingdom of God, outside of Israel. And you see the slow drip of the rest of the world onto God's people until, again, now they go from theocracy to becoming a theocratic monarchy where when they have a king, they have a guy who has absolute power, David, down on to the rest of the kings, um, but it's still being ultimately ruled by God theocratically. There's still God's law governing the people. Um, but you see kind of this continuous slow drip of what happens as the world has corrupted uh, God's people and us buying into systems that God never initially established. So. Yeah. And so this, so God allows them to, to usher in this, um, this new system with a king, right? And um, the first guy is named Saul, and, and Israel just straight, they basically just pick the guy, in, in a sense. Um, God does guide the, the situations, but he's everything Israel wants. He's tall, he's good looking, you know, he's, He's like a Hemsworth. And so um, he's just looking great. And he's a king. And he, uh, he does, he, you know, you read the stories and it doesn't sound like he does too terrible of a job. But the problem was his heart was not about God. And this was a theocratic monarchy. And so he makes two, three uh, pretty big mistakes to show that he was idolatrous and he was really in it for himself. So God essentially says, Saul, you're not going to be the guy anymore. It's going to be David. All right, and so he brings in this guy, David, who's a shepherd, and David becomes this king that really just God uses to try to show us what he is like as a king. And David ushers, ushers in this golden age of Israel, as it's known, um, where things just go well. Um, shalom is being restored more than it ever has for the people of Israel. David, unfortunately, um, I, I think he gets older and he gets bored or whatever, and so he starts getting enticed by sin. And he starts sinning, and he eventually dies, and his son Solomon takes over. And Solomon also does a pretty good job. He, when God says to Solomon, hey, what was anything I could give you to help, help you as, as king? And Solomon doesn't say, hey, I need all this money, or I need this. He says, God, just give me discernment, give me wisdom. And God said, well, that was a pretty good answer. And so he gives him <laughs> uh, wisdom, and he makes him the wisest guy ever, right? And so Solomon reigns, and Solomon does all this. Well, unfortunately, again, we are broken and we are sinful. And Solomon had a little bit too much of his, uh, of his dad in him. And he starts uh, marrying many women over and over and over. And he starts having concubines, which is basically just like the nice way of saying prostitute that you live with. And, and so he has all these like over a thousand women in his life and or around a thousand. And you begin to see Israel's kings now not image God the king anymore. That, and then Israel's kings for the next however many thousand years, back and forth, there will be five really bad kings that do not care about God, that even bring other gods into Israel, which is what Solomon started to do as well. And then there will be one good king that starts to tear them down and starts to serve God, but then that king will die. Or even that king will tear down, well, I'll tear down half of these um, statues to other gods, but I'll keep half of them. And you just see constantly 
the kings fall short. They fall short of imaging God well. They fall short in the system because they're broken uh, vessels, right? And so all the kings are pretty much evil, except for a few. There's a few good ones in the, in the midst there. You can read about all that in First and Second Samuel, First and Second King, and First and Second Chronicles in particular. Now, eventually, because Israel's disobedience, God does all sorts of things, but the one thing he begins to do is he lets countries come in and take over Israel. He says, listen, I, want, I care about you so much that I'm going to let other countries come in and dominate you so that you might cry out and know that you need a savior like you did when you were in Egypt. And so uh, the Babylonians, or the Chaldeans, as you see um, in your Bibles, they did this in particular. They dominated Israel. And they went to Israel, they took a bunch of kids for their own, kidnapped them, and, and basically forced the kids into slavery as well. And uh, that's significantly in the story. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, watch the veggie tales on that, Shadrach and Abednego. Um, it's very good. Uh, and, so, um, and so here they are in the midst of Babylon, one of the most corrupt... Uh, nations ever. Their king is named Nebuchadnezzar, who's just, throughout the rest of the Bible, is like, hey, that guy was pretty jacked up. And even God himself, at one point, he's just so mad at Nebuchadnezzar for his evil and sin. He goes, you know what? Go live in the woods for seven years. You're just going to be like an animal. And he drives Nebuchadnezzar crazy, and he just eats, like, grass for seven years and stuff. Like, So, like, this guy was an evil, evil, evil king. And he was messed up, and he oppressed the people of Israel. And in the midst of it, that there's a prophet in the people of Israel named Jeremiah. And he says this very interesting thing to the people of Israel that we'll find in Jeremiah 29, 4-8. And it's just so interesting that in the midst of their oppression, God says, okay, Jeremiah, give my people this instruction. Um, will someone read 29, 4-8? Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile um, from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its, be- on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus is the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you uh, deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams of Adrian. Alright, thanks. And so in the midst of that, what's that big phrase, that big command that jumps out to you guys that Jeremiah made, or that told the people of Israel? Yes, Micah. Yeah, I was just saying, uh, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. Yeah, that was, that's exactly it. And we mentioned that earlier, how there's going to be the shalom is a big value, but so is seeking the welfare of the city. Or in our case, seeking the welfare of our nation or our state, but also our city. And isn't that just crazy that they're living in the midst of this country that doesn't serve God, doesn't know God, is doing things the way God does not have them. And God says, seek their welfare. Seek the welfare of the city. He doesn't say, hey guys, get, know what you should do. Make sure the Babylonian courtrooms have the Ten Commandments. He doesn't say that, right? He says, I got a little too political there. Uh, 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 he, says, he says, seek the welfare of the city while man- maintaining your faith in Christ. I know Vince had some um, good thoughts on just the story in general, if you want to share them, if you remember them. Yeah, I, I mean, I think 
it's, it's, I think it's probably more profound, has the most profound implications for today. As you look at the Old Testament, you think about the Christians' involvement in politics in today's, uh, today's climate. So what you have in the people of God, again, I love, the, like, this is God saying, like, he sent the people to this place. What, it wasn't, so as much as Babylon thought, hey, man, we won this battle, we've conquered this. No, no, no. The, the sovereign God of the universe took his people and sent them to captivity in Babylon. Okay, like they, ultimately, Babylon looks like they won the war. That's to be written down in history. We know God ultimately sent these people. Very, uh, it sounds very similar to Acts 17 in the New Testament where God appoints the times and boundaries, the places that we may dwell, that we might seek God and find him, right? That every one of you lives in the United States of America for this season for a reason, and it is to do this very same thing. So what you find with the people of God is you have a theocracy now, or a theocratic monarchy, although they have no king, because now they've been taken over, but you have a theocracy existing and living within a monarchy, Right? So the monarchy would be Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and you have this theo- theocratic form of government. You have the people of God who are called to exist within the midst of the monarchy to cause whatever they do as a theocracy to influence the monarchy and bring about their flourishing. What we have in today in America is the church being a theocratic form of government. It is divided, it is uh, completely headed up by Christ, who is the head of the church, and then brought down to his people, right? We now exist as a theocracy in the midst of a democratic republic called the United States of America. We are called to be a faithful presence, to live out our theocracy in such a way that it brings about the flourishing of the democratic republic we find ourselves in. So, Yeah, and I think uh, what's really cool is in the midst of this, we have the book of Daniel where we get to really see really close up how one person of God, how one person of Israel does this, right? He gets enslaved, and as he's enslaved, he still he goes to basically these guys who are training these Israel, Israel kids up to be like their future, like best leaders or whatever. And the way that the Babylonians ate, ate was not the way that God had his people eat at that time. And so he said, well, can I just eat the way that that God would have us eat. Can you just give us two, like 12, two weeks or something like that um, to do that? And so he does that. His boys, Shadrach and Benny, do that as well. And they're <laughs> sitting there, uh, and uh, things go well for them. And God gives them favor in the midst of they're being submissive to Babylon. In the midst of they're listening to Babylon, but not to the point where they have rejected Yahweh. The Lord, the God of the universe. They still follow and, and love him only. And so Daniel is a, a beautiful picture of how I think we can live in America where we can care about the, the flourishing of our city, state, and country. We'll still follow God and still follow God. And I think that's something we're called to. And so these things are going to be intention. Shalom is going to be intention with the flourishing of society. Because society is going to say, hey, this is how we flourish. And we're going to know the truth of, no, that is not how you flourish. There is a shalom that God has for you. And there will be that tension. And how we deal with that tension is often how we really interact with the world and witness and show the gospel to others. And so, um, so remember that shalom is really important and flourishing. We also are supposed to look for the welfare of the city. So I'm using flourishing and welfare of the city interchangeably. But those are the same things. So we need to seek the welfare of our city, state, and nation, I think. And even though this was to Israel, I think I, I can't get away from the fact of how similar it is to our story. And 
the reason I think we still follow it is this is not so much a law of God right here, but a value of God. And I think we always take the values of God, even today in the New Covenant. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. I know Vince had some other good thoughts about Jeremiah, too, um, in the midst of all this as well. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's just important to, to think through the story and understand, like, man, that Israel hated Jeremiah. Like, so if you go back and you look at his... Uh, what he's written down, like he, he's called like the weeping prophet. I mean, like the dude was just crying all the time because they hated the message that he brought. And surely they hated, hey, Jeremiah, like, dude, we don't want to do that. Like, we do just want to hang on the outskirts. We don't want to have to interact with these people. We don't want to have to be about the flourishing of their, like, do you realize what they've done to us? And you're this guy who's now telling us we're supposed to move in. And so they constantly persecuted Jeremiah. And so even today, across contemporary America, I think we do lash out against those who would call us as as uh, as Christians to go and engage and to be part of this process in a God honoring, God faithful way, but also at the same time, like caring for our nation and seeking its greatest flourishing. And so I just find it funny that in, in many ways, the same way that Jeremiah was was hated on for this idea, oftentimes you'll get into and on the macro level and certainly on micro level uh, things as well, which we'll probably talk more about next week. There's oftentimes a lot of persecution for the one who would call us to stand in that gap between what God is communicating to the world and then those who would want to destroy it. So yeah, and so that that kind of takes you through the general story of the Old Testament and God dealing with governments. Again, there's more there, but we'd be here for three weeks if we went through it all. And so again, God's values have not changed. Um, and then there's this kind of period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It was about 400 years. It's the intertestamental period. And, and there's some interesting things uh, Vince is going to share with us about that period as well. Yeah, so, you know, so after, so they come out of captivity uh, and, and they're trying to just figure out, hey, what, what is, what's the future of this look like? And all of a sudden, at the end of the book of Malachi, uh, it's the last time we get to hear the voice of God in the Old Testament. All of a sudden, for 400 years, God decides to no longer speak to Israel. Now, just think about this as a people. Like, he has engaged with every generation since the beginning of time up into this moment. And all of a sudden, he just zips up his mouth and he's done. He's like, look, I'm just going to step back. And, and, and obviously, is he still sustaining, holding the world together, keeping everything functioning? Absolutely. But he is no longer communicating uh, with the people of God during these 400 years. Now, what happens during those 400 years, and if you study this period of time, is all of a sudden you get these different groups of people which begin to pop up, and they try and vie for the power over the people of Israel. So the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes are the three main political players that all of a sudden pop up in the midst of the intertestamental period, and you hear them a ton in the New Testament, especially the Pharisees, right? They're the big one. But these guys all prop up, and they begin to take the laws of old, and they begin to to reinterpret them for their own gain, their own power structures, so that they kind of set themselves in place to be that specific liaison between God and man. But now God has become silent, so now they are almost free to rule however they like. So they have set themselves up in this. And I think, again, it's just a wise lesson for us of what happens when we leave God behind. When, when God, when we stop listening to the voice of God, we stop seeking the face of God for what we and our interaction should be, how we should submit to Him, and what that means for us to do this process well is all of a sudden the greed of man, the power hungriness of man will begin to use our own means to achieve that which we cannot have outside of him. So um, just another, hey, let's be careful. 
So we're through the Old Testament. And just so you guys know, for the rest of the today, it will be, it's going to get easier. This is very much lecture, lecture, history type stuff, because that's, that's a lot of what the Old Testament is. But so we get to this point, this intertestamental period to where, um, where we've realized now what we've talked about together is God's values have not changed, but his covenant is about to change, right, in, in what we've talked about. His covenant, he has this Old Testament, which is also known as the Old Covenant. And that was just a different way of doing things. God's law, God had a law for his people. God had a judicial, moral, and ceremonial law. And the people were supposed to follow that. And in a sense, uh, it was always their faith that got them to God, even in the Old Testament. But in a sense, that's how they got to God on a uh, personal level. And God did that. I, I don't, we don't exactly know why he did that. But I think he did it to show us a better covenant, which is found in Jesus. So he brings Jesus, who's a far better covenant. And Jesus, we know the story. He lived the perfect life. He died the death for yours and my sins. And he was raised from the dead so we could share in life and eternity with him, right? And because of that, Jesus did a few other things. Jesus, he lived a perfectly clean life. He followed this law. So all those ceremonial things had to do with cleanness, right? Often people would be unclean if they touched a dead body or they did this or they, they did that. Jesus was... God on earth, so he made everything clean. So if he was raising a dead body, he made it clean by his holiness, by his power, by God's power. And so besides that too, he just followed that stuff well, and he lived out the ceremonial part of the law. So now our covenant is based on the promise and faith of what Jesus has done, right? And so now we do not have to follow that, right? Thank God, because we can eat Bacon wrapped shrimp now because of that. Like, because those are two things that the people of God can eat. And so, yeah. <laughs> Amen. And uh, praise Him. Hallelujah. Uh, Jesus, or whatever you say. Uh, uh, so, but not only that, even better is like, remember earlier I was making the jokes that would be like, hey, if you did this, you're dead. You did this, you're dead. Right? That wasn't a joke like that, really. It's pretty much how it went down. Now, Jesus. He took on that death because there was a truth in that law. The truth in the law was our sin is so serious that God wants to kill us for it. So Jesus stepped in and Jesus was killed for it. And so now we also don't have to uh, fill out the judicial parts of the law as well. We don't have to uh, fill out or live out the punitive parts of the law. And I say that because I, could, I, I don't want you guys to go away from this and say, Anthony said we should just go make a new Israel or whatever, and that's the perfect nation. No, it's not because we live under a new covenant with God now. Does that make sense? And that's very complex, and there's more nuance to all of that, but I hope on a baseline level that makes sense. And so in the New Testament, we are going to find... The role of government. We are going to find how we interact with government now under this new covenant. Because it's a little bit different. There's still shalom. They're still seeking the welfare of the city. But now we don't have to institute these laws of the Old Testament anymore. Because we are not the people of Israel. We are the people of God. Right? We are people of the, of the Holy Spirit, really. Of, of Jesus. And so... Um, and so... Uh, we're going to see the role of government, how we should relate to the government, and even what is our Christian hope for the government. And right, that'll be the New Testament. It'll be easier. It'll be a little bit more interactive. Does anyone have any questions or need a bathroom break? And, 
Bathroom break? Let's do a four minute bathroom break. Thanks for hanging in. I know it's a lot. Sorry, there's some more red, too.
So it's the Matthew 22, 15 through 23 part. Thanks. And the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians' teaching, are saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us, then, what you think. It is lawful... Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Because uh, because Jesus, aware of their malice, said, "Sorry, excuse me. Um, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax." And they brought to him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, "Those or whose likeness and inscription is this?" They said, "Caesar's." Then he said to them, "Therefore, render to Caesar." the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they were marveled, and they left him in one Alright. Next up, it's a big one. Who's a good reader? Who likes to read? It's going to be Romans 13, 1 through 7. Alright, Mitchell. Romans 13, 1 through 7. In French, every person be subject to it. He said it in French. Oh, I'm going to say it. I'm <laughs> yeah, everybody's like, no. <laughs> this is America. <laughs> this is America class. <laughs> uh, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. 
Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one? Uh, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, and carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in the subjection, uh, in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscious, um, conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all of what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Thank you. All right, short one. First Timothy 2, 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Awesome. All right, and then First Peter 2, 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. All right. We'll stop there for now. So there's two things that I want us to draw from this text. And the first is just kind of what what is God's definition and role for government. And I might correct you if you say the wrong thing here. So, But what, as we read, especially the Romans and the, and the first Peter, uh, what did you guys see as the main role uh, found for the government? Obedience. Obedience to the government? Uh, that's definitely called to but uh, I mean more in the sense of what is the government supposed to do in God's eyes responsibilities of the government yeah carrying out God's law sorry oh I was going to say it just says the authorities are there to punish the wrongdoing but to praise the good right yeah it's like a matter of justice yeah so it sounds like to me that God's view of the role of government is to punish wrong, right? To wield the sword, as it says, right? To, uh, to issue justice, right? This is key. I want you guys to get this. So write this down somewhere if you can. The role of the government, biblically speaking, is to punish wrongdoing, is to wield the sword, is to bring justice forth, okay? Is to bring justice I remember the first time I read through these, I kind of expected something like the role of the government is to ensure democracy happens or something like that. I'm not even kidding. I really thought it was something like that. But then when I just see that baseline level, the role of the government is to wield the sword, to punish wrong, is really, is basically, yeah, God's will. And, And what God says is what he wants the government to be. Does that make sense? 
So when we look to governments and we form governments as humans, who knows uh, if we'll be forming a government in a few years after the Walking Dead massacre. Um, <laughs> we should look for a government that does punish wrong, that wields the sword, that fights for justice. Now, how the sword is wielded is debated, and that's okay. And uh, for some, we think uh, a justice issue is this, and some others don't think it's a justice issue, and, and that's a debate. Uh, but at the end of the day, justice is the role of the government in God's eyes. Does that make sense? All right. Number two, the second thing I want to draw from these texts um, is that, and I'll just say it, all governments are put in place by God. All governments, all government leaders are put in place by God. Um, on your next page, it says John 19, 11, just a verse. Um, I'll just read it. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So he's talking to Pontius Pilate, and Pilate's getting worried of just about everything. And, and Jesus essentially says, like, listen, God gave you your authority. God made you governor over this region. And so that's Jesus saying it. We see it in Romans. We see it in 1 Peter. And so all governments, that means even Nazi Germany was put in place by God. Now, we can wrestle with that, and that's tough, and that's hard to hear. I saw all of you go, what? Right before I said that. But there is a truth to the fact that, in some sense, God put Adolf Hitler in power. I don't like that, I'll be honest. But there's a truth to that, and we need to uh, understand, or we just need to understand that. Um, do you guys have anything to add to that idea before I go on? No, other than, I mean, the anxiety and it can be painful and we don't understand. Yes, exactly. I mean, the Hitler one is brutal and you just, I think we living under the sun just have to uh, power through it. Yeah. And again, as you preach, not to be anxious about it. When, yeah. When we have different views on why he would do that. Yeah. Or we don't even understand why he would do that. Yeah. Yeah, I think just even, excuse me, as Christians, like, just the scope of this, like, we obviously, we're going to think through a lens of, the 20, 21st century kind of American mindset, but honestly, we just ran through the Old Testament, and there were a ton of Old Testament leaders who just talked about, like, Nebuchadnezzar was a terrible, terrible guy, and the things he was doing, not just to the people of Israel in captivity, but to the Babylonian people, the Assyrian king, you see constantly throughout the Old Testament, these other leaders, even within Israel, that were terrible dudes, and so, yes, the Holocaust, obviously, in, in our scope of what we would understand is uh, life and what we're somewhat connected to it is the worst thing but we, we just read an entire Old Testament which is filled with leaders like this okay so it's not like he's the outlier like it has constantly been God bringing about power giving power to leaders who are not good people God, God is so far beyond us that we just can't understand it so again we have to remember God so we cannot blame God for Adolf Hitler's sin which there are many 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 right we cannot blame God for that but God says in his word that he, you know, in a sense, brings all leaders um, to power. He puts them and gives them their authority. And so we need to remember that um, because I think often the way we live and the way we act is as if that's not true at all. As if uh, it's just up to us. Um, so, anyways, 
that's just something I think we all need to hear. So, well, question, yes, Anna. So I don't think God is telling us just because he puts them in place that we cannot contend with our governments and ask for change and fight for change. I think we can. And I think in some of our other postures, we're going to see that too. Um, so let's get, let's come back to your question, actually, okay. before we go that route. Can I just add yeah. to it, though? It kind of dovetails with Vince and you, Anthony, uh, preaching on the Beatitudes, is how we are, too, as, as a Christian, you can mourn because you see the depravity and you see the sin. So what can you do? We, we do mourn for those injustices. But also, in a certain amount, we also hunger and thirst after righteousness. So, again, we'll include that as, as you yeah. want to later, but those are two practical things we do as Christians. Yeah. And there will be more. And remind us if we forget. But I think there will be more too. Yes, Kevin? Just with the Hitler thing, I don't think God put Hitler there. I think God let Hitler yeah, so I would just because he let him, he gave him authority. Yeah, and I think that's. I mean, I think it's semantical at that point. Then is in his word, it sounds like God did, in a sense, put him there. So I mean, at the time of Jesus. So the real thing with Jesus, that first text we read about taxes, essentially Israel was being controlled by Rome, by Caesar, who a lot of the Caesars didn't have a good track record. A lot of Caesars were really oppressing the people of Israel. They were killing the people of Israel. They were trying to limit their numbers, as we see even Herod doing that. He's not Caesar, but he was under Caesar. And so they were essentially saying, Jesus, hey, this guy who kills us, oppresses us, and steals our money, should we pay taxes to him? And Jesus essentially says, yes, we should. And then Jesus later on says to Pilate, Yes, I put that guy, or, you know, God the Father put that guy in place. So I think that if we want to completely exclude the sovereignty of God, which is a very biblical idea, we can say, yeah, God just let that happen. And there's a sense of that that's true. But I think there's another sense that, like God knew that that was going to happen and it was going to happen that way. So, yes. I heard a good quote. I don't know who it's from, but says something along the lines of God when God wants to judge a nation he'll give them a wicked ruler. Yeah. So he'll give them someone that um, like a Hitler that not necessarily could carry out all the evil himself. Yeah. But to you know, kinda see where the people are at too and if all those people are I mean, the Holocaust doesn't happen just from Hitler. He has to have hundreds of thousands of people help him make it happen. Yeah. So Putting Hitler in power wasn't like, oh, okay, they're doomed. It was kind of God's way of saying, okay, well, where, where is Germany at? Where is this like Nazi regime at? Where are all these people's hearts at? Um, I would be slow to say that though, because then I would say we would be saying that 
all of the Jewish people were then thus being judged by God in that moment in the Holocaust because they are also, I mean, in a sense, they're they're part of the German people and they are the ones that really experienced the devastation. Right. So I'm not saying this is easy truth. This idea that God puts leaders in power is very very difficult, and it's God's sovereignty is very very difficult. Like it, it starts in the garden. Why did this? Why was there a serpent? Why did God allow a serpent? Like it starts there. And so, why did God make a tree? You know, like, it starts there. But God's sovereignty is throughout the Bible. Um, and so, I think, I, th- I think we just have to realize that be- just because God puts a leader in place does not mean God condones that leader's actions. Does that make sense? So, God put these leaders in place. We do not know his ultimate meaning. As uh, C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, often with God, it's like ants trying to understand humans. How much more infinitely harder is us, us humans, trying to understand an infinite God? I don't know if you have anything to add. Yeah. No, I mean, I'll just. I mean, so yeah, I think it is. It's a semantics, but semantics oftentimes get really important, especially. So when you look at the original language in the Greek of these these words, so appointed and instituted, respectively, they mean uh, to raise up and uh, to put in place. You know, so some we you can dance around it, but you you got to dance around it. And it's not necessarily there to dance around, if that makes sense. So it makes us feel better to say, like, he didn't actually put them there. Um, but the, at least the verbiage is very clear. Like, it's literally using the same words used in other places to say, like, uh, I appointed Anthony as an elder of this church. Like, and so I appointed Anthony as an elder of this church. I instituted Randy's eldership process. Like, I raised him up as an elder here at the church, that type of thing. And so, like... I didn't let them become elders. I actually actively put them into those positions, and that's the same language that's being used in the New Testament. So it's difficult, but it is the language that's used. And so I don't want us to think we can leave here and just kind of semantically talk away the real hard truth of the Bible. You know, so. But wouldn't you say it's equally important when we're thinking through those things to look at the entire context of Scripture as well? Yeah, Scripture because touches Scripture, sure. In all honesty, at the same time, you can look at it, God is not surprised by evil, and it doesn't throw him off guard or off balance in a, in a really beautiful way. He uses that evil for his good, which I think sometimes from the perspective, oh, God put that person in place, you kind of get this, like, angsty, like, oh, I wouldn't have done it that way if I was God. Oh, sure. And so looking at it through, no, like, humans are evil. I'm a part of the same evil that that king caused, and that's why... God and His goodness since Jesus, right. which we get to see from a different perspective. I think that like, yep. really helps in feeling, instead of insecure, like God's some crazy person to put Hitler into power, feeling like this is a kingdom that can't be shaken, and this is a God that doesn't, yeah. that doesn't falter because the reign power. Yeah. Well, so even if, if you're in service, it's the same four questions. Like, did, does the answer change if God actually put Hitler in power? They shouldn't. God is still who he is. We're still who we are, which are a sin-filled, depraved people who desperately need the Savior, and we got it in Christ. You know, it doesn't change the promises of God nor the purpose of our lives. Like, nothing changes if God actually put this to place. Like, he's still the same king, the same God, the same Savior. You know, it doesn't change anything. And so you have to, again, like you're saying, you have to allow the lens of what we know to be true about who God is and what he's doing in this world to be the lens with which you view that decision instead of using that decision to be the lens with which you view God. Does that make sense? And so, oh, this guy appointed Hitler, so that must mean this about God. It's like, no, no, no. 
we know this about God so that he must have been doing something that we don't understand. Yeah. So. I'd say, I mean, like, another biblical idea is God put each and every one of us on earth. Like, we believe that. Like, that God orchestrated and made it so that you are alive here on earth in the time that you're in. That's Acts 17, for starters, and lots of other places as well. So does that, that does not mean, though, that God has condoned every one of your actions, right? And so, did he know that you were going to commit all these evil things over the course of your life? Yes. Should you not exist then? Should you not be put in the places that he put you in? Well, that's up to God. So I think that it's a tough idea, but unfortunately, I think, like Ben said, I think we talk our way out of it sometimes and not just deal with the truth of what the scripture is trying to speak to us. Um, so, again, I'm not saying it's easy and, you know, maybe we get to heaven and I'm, we're wrong on this. But we're trying to be faithful to what the Word is saying. Can, can I bring up another story that we have time just for that's a helpful illustration? So a lot of times uh, what gets brought up uh, predominantly in a lot of conversations in regards to this type of idea is specifically Pharaoh from the Old Testament. And so you have this interaction with Pharaoh and, uh, and he's like, hey, do you let my people go? And then are you getting another plague, right? And it says that in the process of this happening, it says that God hardens the heart of Pharaoh, right? And so you're like, wait a minute, dude. So you're telling this dude, let, his, let, let my people go, but you're also causing his heart to be even more hard so that he will not actually let him go. Like, this seems kind of messed up. And so, you know, there, there are, um, there, like, it is one of the most debated questions within the Old Testament and God's sovereignty and all that. What most theologians, especially within our vein, uh, would answer to that question is that the reason why um, Pharaoh's heart remains and continued to move hard is because God pulled back his common grace from the life of Pharaoh. So in other words, the only reason you and I are not killing each other in this room right now is because of God's grace. Like when he says he sustains, it also means he sustains or holds us back from fully living in our depraved selves, which would just do crazy things. If you don't believe that's true, look at the first act of humanity after the garden, and it's a brother killing a brother. Like, I mean, it's it shows us right away how jacked up of a people we are. Um, and so what happens with Pharaoh is God is pulls back his common grace from Pharaoh's life, which causes him to further descend into this depraved mind and depraved heart. His heart is hardened, and he acts in such a way. So when it comes to like a leader like Hitler, you apply that same concept, which we know from the Old Testament, that same thing would apply. So he was appointed, and grace left Hitler's life. Like it, it, God didn't actively cause him to sin, but grace left, and so his actions were a response to the fact that God, uh, in his sovereignty, was like, look, man, no more grace for you, you know? And then he just lived in the human condition that we would all live in without God's grace in our lives. So I don't know if that's helpful or not, but that concept has been good for me. But wrestle with it. Wrestle with this idea. Don't, you know, maybe you're in here and you're like, man, this, Anthony and Vince are psychos or whatever, but go home, study the word, study things on this. So wrestle with it. Uh, don't just throw it out. All right, so those are two things about the government that I want us to note from these texts. So the definition role of government is basically justice to wield the sword, and all governments are put in place by God. Now, there's two postures from these texts that we just read that I want us to note as well. Um, the first posture is we are to submit to our governments. It, it specifically says to be subject and to pay taxes. Now, there's a clause on this one. You are, to be, you are to submit to your governments unless they ask you to sin. All right. So we see a, a direct example of this in the Bible. It's in Acts 5. The disciples had been out, or the apostles had been out 
preaching the gospel, and these guys put them on trial, and we see what happens in Acts 5, 27 and 29, and I'll just read it again uh, for time's sake, but it says, And when they had brought them, this is the disciples, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in his name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Jesus and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. So we are to submit to our governments in basically everything. You don't like taxes? Guess what? Jesus said, pay your taxes. And so did Paul. Even if they go up. So did Paul and so did Peter. You don't like following (laughs) speeding laws? If you don't like following speedy laws, guess what? God said, be, be subject. Should I go here? I don't Dang know. It. Um, there's <laughs> other laws. <laughs> Did you have a question? Yeah. What about America? America was founded on the idea of we don't want to pay taxes to our king. Yeah. So I think that we can contend for lower taxes always as citizens. I think we have that freedom specifically in this country. But I think that the moment our hearts grumble too much about it, I think then we need to, I think we just have to be doing a heart check. Is my heart in submission to the government? So submission would be, sure, you can probably contend, argue, say, hey, I don't want to pay taxes. But then if you don't pay your taxes, then you are sinning, if that makes sense. Also, we left because they weren't represented. Yeah. You know, that was the issue. They weren't, they had no vote. No back taxation in, without, without representation. representation. Yeah. Now we do. Now we do. So, so that's, you know, does your vote matter? Well, you can vote for more or less, whatever, how you feel, but at least you're represented now. Yeah. So they say. <laughs> and Randy, sorry, 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 hate, sorry, sorry, and Randy hates taxes. We all do. We all do. I love them. <laughs> <laughs> They're a necessary evil, obviously. Yeah. We have to have some taxes. So, um... Unless they ask you to sin, you are to be subject. You are to submit to your governments. That's clear from these texts. Does anyone disagree? Okay. Um, the second posture, and, and also oh, this yeah. to be like when when Peter's writing that specifically, uh, or is, are you getting the all three? All three. I mean, just like, think of who their emperor is at this time. Like bad dudes are their. I mean, literally people who are killing their uh, their ch- fellow church members, right? I mean, like, are in sincere and absolute persecution. They're like, hey, this is the dude you submit to. This is the dude you honor. This is the dude you praise with. Anyway, it's just, just thinking through the context of, of who he's asking you to. Like, you, we, if you, I don't know where, if you thought Bush was bad or you think Obama was bad. Like, either way, they're not Nero, right? Like, they, they haven't yet killed most of our churches and blown up our buildings and... On yeah. and on and on. Fed to the lions in the Coliseum. Yeah. Right, fed to the lions. I mean, that, so, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, hush up. We say hush up. Uh, uh, our second posture is um, we are to pray for and honor our governments. Not only are we supposed to pray for them like we did today at church, in the service, um, but also honor our governments. I love how Peter, too, in the, in the first Peter passage, says honor those who deserve honor. And I feel like he had people in his congregation that were gun owners, I mean, and that were, uh, that didn't want to honor the emperor. And, uh, and they would have said, well, I don't have to honor Nero because he's a jerk. And 
Peter explicitly writes, honor the emperor. Peter's life ended up, most historians agree, flipped upside down on a cross, crucified by the Roman government, more than likely. And so um, this is the guy that wrote that, because it's God's word to us. Um, so we are supposed to honor and pray for it. So really, the fruit of the Spirit should be evident in all our lives, especially when we interact with the government. Any other thoughts, questions on that one? Great. Now, those are two postures from those texts that I think we could drop, get. I think there's five more postures that will help influence our vote, help influence our uh, how we're citizens here in America that I want to talk about as well. We'll try to get through them quick. The first uh, principle is this idea of stewardship in the Bible. There's a story, and I don't have it in your sheet, but it's in Matthew 25. It's verses 14 through 30. It's a story about essentially God giving everybody their abilities, their talents, whatever he's given them. Um, it's a story of servants getting talents, which was their word for money back then, um, or one of their words for money, um, and how these servants use their talents to replicate them and, and whatnot. And so God, there's this idea throughout the Bible of stewardship. So your life, and even Jesus in that passage that we just read, where he said, give unto Caesars what is Caesar, give unto God what is God's, your entire life is God's. And so, if you've been born in America, you've been given the ability to participate in your government. Oh, yep, sorry. You've been, you've been given the ability to participate in your government. I know for me in the past, I have been very apathetic and think, oh, I don't need to participate in the government. But then when I read these ideas of stewardship throughout the Bible, stewarding the things that God has given us, I'm convicted. And I say, no, I should steward my vote well, even. I should look at the candidates. I should like know who I'm voting for. I should steward these things well. So that means you should be involved politically at the local, state, and national level, in my opinion. That doesn't mean you have to be like perfect in how you steward it, but do it to the best of your ability. Because God has given you that. He's entrusted you that. Um, so, and another note is, uh, what a blessing to be born in America. God designed that for each of us. We should take that, this extra talent or whatever, so to speak, of, of being able to vote and use it. And be able to speak out against our government or speak uh, out in honor of our government and use it instead of uh, just throw it away. There's other, many other countries across the world they wish they had this. Yeah, and I would say, uh, I mean, just on that stewardship piece, too, like, it's not just a vote. Like, you, uh, you steward, like, free speech. You're supposed to steward that really well, too. There's crazy stuff in our country that you should be talking about and speaking out and saying this is not okay, right? Use your voice. Like, that's also, like, a, uh, a stewardship issue when it comes to justice in this country is use your voice and use your power that you've been given to, to speak out. What's up? So we talk about like, politics being like this beautiful matter, and obviously I, I'm sure you're talking think about specific things, you know, that are not specific with God honoring. Um, but like, you have to like take in mind like a lot of these issues are very divisive, and so like us as being Christians trying to influence and have influence on other people's lives, ultimately bring them to Jesus. Where do political concepts come into play, and how do you manage those when you're trying your ultimate goal? Yeah, um, one of our next uh, postures kind of speaks to that. 
but I don't know if you guys want to say anything to that. Well, I don't want to step on something you'll get ready to say. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get to that, okay. um, hopefully. If we don't, re-remind us and say, hey, that wasn't a good answer. Um, <laughs> so uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get great, great questions. So we got two. Um, Vince, will you hit on our second posture here? Uh, yeah, we are citizens of the kingdom first and foremost, you know, and so again, that, oh, number three. No, 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 that's good. I said second. It's really our fourth posture at this yeah. point. Oh, sorry, yeah. sorry, yeah, sorry. That was my yeah. Uh, yeah, we are citizens of, uh, of, um, of the kingdom of God first and foremost, and so I, I kind of said that at the beginning, but um, that, that's a posture your heart just has to take when you engage this topic. Again, is um, we see our government, we see our politics, we see people through the lens of the values of the kingdom of God, not through the lens of the values of the Constitution of the United States of America. Okay, like, the, it's, it's, a, it's a decent document. It's one of the best ones ever written if you look through history, right, in and of itself. Um, but it's not the Bible, and it's not, it's not Matthew 5 through 7, it's not the Beatitudes, it's, it's nothing compared to the kingdoms that Christ establishes in his kingdom when he arrives. And so as faithful believers, your allegiance has to be there, which means you view everything through that lens uh, and not through the lens of, of what our government says. You know, uh, Yeah. Sweet. All right, so our next posture, is this our fifth posture? Fifth posture. Our final hope is not a government or system, but is Christ. Our final hope is Christ, is essentially it. So our final hope is not a government or system, but is Christ. Which is, in essence, what Vince was just yeah. expanding upon. Yeah, exactly. So this, these two really go together. Um, and at the, end of, at the end of the Bible is Revelation, and we get, just get this picture that God is going to come, and he's going to live, and he's going to reign with us. In Revelation 21, it does not say God is going to come, and he is going to elect George W. again. Like, it doesn't say that, right? It says, it says God is going to come and he's going to live with us. Reagan, I'm sorry. Um, and so, but when Christ is your final hope, when these other things in our government let you down, it's only a minute of your day instead of 144 Facebook posts in a row. Um, it's getting personal, I'm sorry. Um, all right, fourth, this posture, or sixth, this posture. I, I label it wrong on mine, sorry. Uh, sixth posture. Do not be swayed by the ways of the world. Do not be swayed by the ways of the world. Some uh, texts that go with this, 1 Corinthians 2.12 and Romans 12.1. So do not be swayed by the ways of the world. 1 Corinthians 2.12, Romans 12.1. Listen, this is what breaks my heart right now in the political season. This is the thing that is, uh, I think it breaks Vince's heart more than mine. But um, I get on Facebook, I see all my Christian brothers and sisters I've met and lived in communion with for years and years and years. And I see some people posting some stuff that they're just being belligerent. They're being jerks about it. They sound just like uh, the politicians do. They sound just like... All, all these people yelling at each other all the time. That's the ways of the world. On the other hand, I see this other problem. I see a lot of my friends, and I see this probably more in Flagstaff. People <laughs> posting things that are gospel ideas, but with these flavors of the world in them, or they only care about these things because the world and our culture currently cares about them. To the chagrin of all these other 
values of God that we see throughout the Bible. I'm not going to give specific examples, but if you find yourself watching MTV, and this sounds like a joke, but I'm serious, and you're just like, right on, right on, right on, like the whole time, I perhaps you're very influenced by the ways of the world. On the flip side of that, if you find yourself watching certain news or media outlets, and you're like, right on, right on, right on, maybe you're also um, being conform, like being like the, the ways of the world. And so I think it's just something, the Christian in the Bible is su- supposed to be something entirely different than any human on earth. You know? They are supposed to be entirely different. And so, Micah, to answer your question kind of before, is I think we can approach every political topic as Christians and we can do it in a way that Christ would do it. And I, yeah, you know what? Abortion is going to be uh, really controversial. Racial reconciliation is going to be really controversial. There's all these topics that are going to be really controversial. And I think as Christians, we are called to talk to each of them. But how we do it matters. If we sound belligerent, we shouldn't even do it. We're a noisy gong without any love, right? 1 Corinthians 13. Okay, and so I think, though, we should be such a special class of citizen in America that we are convincing the most liberal and the most conservative and the most in-between of their sinful views, and they are changing them. They are changing their opinion because we're, well, really because of the power of the Holy Spirit, hopefully. And so we need to not look like the ways of the world. Yes? Is this, is that a good place to start? Like, in my opinion, like, I feel like if you bring them to Christ, like, Holy Spirit would transform from inside out. I don't know, maybe addressing issues. I don't, I don't know. That's where I always come. Like, I see what you're saying, yeah. Like, I would much rather talk with someone about the gospel than about politics, personally. Yeah, that's my point of view. Like, I don't know. I just, I never really yeah. gone about talking to non-Christians or Christians for that matter at all yeah. about politics because I just found it just, like, causes tension yeah. between me and that person. But, like, as I grow closer Christ, and as you know, they ultimately, if they come to know Christ, that the Holy Spirit might transform their their views. Yeah, um, I can kind of attest to that also when it comes to talking about politics with people. But I think one way that we approach it is, I mean, you know, you start with the simplest thing is that God is love. So approach it with the perspective of love first. And typically, when you do that, you really can't go wrong with it because you're not going to say anything. I mean, you may say something that that might offend, but um, if you if you say it in the right manner, it's it's a discussion, not an argument. And that's typically where things go sour is when you start to have an argument with someone instead of a discussion. Yeah. Um, but to start off with that is probably yeah. the best. I I would say that if you're hard, if you're if you're more often talking to people about political things than you are about the gospel, there's probably a a balance out of balance thing. But I I would hope though that the way we talk about political things is actually just a out. Uh, it's just a representation yeah. of the gospel, right? right? So getting in these conversations about abortion, for instance, which I think that most of the people in this room are very afraid to do from what I've viewed on Facebook. Afraid to do? Afraid to do. And I think that we can get in these kind of conversations in a loving, kind way. And in a sense, we are speaking the gospel. In a sense, we're saying the Imago Dei matters. The image of God on us matters. God created us, right? And so but how we do it. And some topics are just going to offend. And that is part of being this kind of person that's totally different than anyone in this world. So sometimes things will offend. Um, but I, I, I think, yeah, lead with love. Lead with the gospel. 
But I think it's good to have these conversations as well. And I think it's good to always reorient our views as we're talking politics, that the problem is not politics, the problem is sin. Yeah. And the answer to sin is not politics. You cannot, and yeah. you, politics will never fix sin. God changes sin. And sometimes you get two people that see sin and the brokenness of sin and they associate it with politics. Like, no, because of this policy, that's why it's broken. Or that's why it's working. And we need to disassociate that and say, no, sin is why, sin is the problem. Republican, Democrat, not problems. Sin, problem. Policies, as, as great as they could be or as bad as they could be, sin is the problem in the midst of that. And you will never beat sin, ever, with policies. You will do it with Jesus. And so if, you, if your attitude is, hey, this policy will fix sin, you'll lose every time. I do think there will be a, always a tension, though. Yeah, because absolutely. Because I, I think there, there are times when we should pass laws and policy to curb sin and stop sin from happening. Um, and so uh, I would say, but I think there's always going to be like a tension. the purpose of the law. Was yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it goes back to human pride as well. I mean, yeah. That's why we created the law in the first place. Yeah. But I'd say even with, I think the most heated discussions come from emotional viewpoints. Yeah. And so uh, I think a big part of just engaging in these type of discussions is one picking and choosing your battles. Like don't go on the crazy ranter on Facebook and try to yeah. try to disprove his view. They, I mean those people they just want to get a reaction. They're in a sense trolling you on yeah. Facebook. And it's useless to yeah. get heated up over those conversations. But if you can have a discussion with somebody where you can really deduct your viewpoint and say, Yeah, I, I don't believe in that abortion is right because of these reasons or, or whatever it is, then you can yeah. at least present your viewpoint and if the yeah. person hates you for it, then... Yeah. You know. no, um, I, I think just, again, always returning us uh, as much as we can to Scripture, right? So, yeah. Michael, what's the Great Commission? To well, make disciples of all nations. And continue. What's the rest of it say? teaching them to obey. Everything I've commanded, right? So, so, so the Great Commission is, yes, go. Like, Make disciples, so preach the gospel, make disciples. But there's there's two categories to what that means. One is baptizing, another one is saving them, preaching a gospel that saves, that sets up eternity, that draws their heart, renews them, gives them the newness of life, right? But the other half is teach them to obey everything I've commanded. And so everything you've read, the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke, and the gospel of John, everything that Christ has said, we are to go and try and teach this world to obey that stuff because it's good. Now, we're not called to judge those who don't ascribe to it, uh, but we are certainly called to try and get people to, to live in more just societies. Teach them to obey, the type, to have the heart that Christ has. And so it's a both and. The preaching of the gospel certainly has to be primary, but I think our gospel has to be larger to include both the saving of souls and the restoration of justice, this shalom peace. And so as you go out and you want to talk to people, yes, talk to them about, hey, listen, you've got this hole in your heart, right, that only God can fill, and you've got a sin issue that you've got to deal with. Good thing Christ came, died for your sins. Um, but we also, at the same time, need to be dealing with the injustice and the brokenness of this world. And we do that through teaching them everything God has commanded or Christ has commanded, right? And so that is part of the Great Commission of your life. And so it isn't about just going and only having the four spiritual law conversations. It's having the conversations about restorative justice and having the conversations about um, equality. and having the, And those are, that's all gospel stuff. 
So we do ourselves in the church and our culture a disservice when we separate these things from each other when they're one and the same. Yeah. So let me read our last posture for this, and then we can hit some more questions. But our last posture, and it kind of goes with this too, is and what we've been saying talking about is all brokenness should hurt us, and we should want shalom in all realms of brokenness. All brokenness should hurt us, and we should want shalom in all realms of brokenness. The whole, the whole Bible really speaks to this idea. So all brokenness should hurt us, and we should want shalom in all realms of brokenness. Um, I, here's, here's why this is important, is I think that we need to be professionals in knowing what things are not the way they should be. And we should be professional reconcilers. Because that's really, we have the ministry of reconciliation as Christians, Corinthians says. And so we should be constantly trying to reconcile this earth and humankind on it back to Jesus, back to God. Right? We're all prodigals. We're all prodigal sons of God. And so uh, I, what also saddens me too is how I see sometimes people say, Hey man, there's this broken part. Of, of society, we need to fix it. And then I'll hear Christians go, yeah, but they don't care about this part that's broken. Oh, geez Louise, I, I mean, I didn't know my essay right now or whatever I'm saying right now has to talk on every broken part of society, right? Uh, like sometimes we're going to be speaking to issues that are one part of broken part of society. And when the person says, yeah, well, this broken part, we should say, amen and amen, that's broken too, right? We should say, yes, that's broken, let's fix that too. And so we should not, I, I'm really getting worried on Facebook when I see these Christians going, hey, there's this, no, what about this, no, what about this, what about this, what about this? And it's like, whoa, geez Louise, like, it, it just freaks me out because I'm just like, no, we should care about both things or all things that are truthful, truly sinfully broken. And I think too often we go, no, this one is the really sinful one and this one is the one that doesn't matter as much. Like, both things matter, both things grieve God. Maybe one is doing more damage, and God want, would rather need to clean that up first. I could see that, but outside of that, I think that it, both things should still hurt us. Um, so those are our postures that I think we should take as Christians when it comes to our voting. I'm sure there's more. I'm sure you could come up with more. I was honestly originally it was three, then it was four, and then it was, <laughs> and then it was seven. And so uh, I think we can come up with more and more postures, and then. Randy had some good thoughts on this too. Historically, tell us just how the church has been when it's come to fighting for shalom, fighting for against brokenness and, and things like that. Yeah, you've been around a while. Luther, what's going on here? Peter, what was Peter doing? Remind me the context that we were talking about. Well, you're just talking about, in particularly, I think we were just having a conversation about a bunch of the broken things in America and. Uh, you were talking about how, just about slavery, and just Christian's influence on that, and still some things slavery. like that. There's still, there's still slavery in the world. No, it's true, and I think, if I, if I recall what I was saying, is yeah. the Christian community needs to be verbal about some of these things. And people will bash, you know, Christianity. However, we, in part, not every Christian was spot on in the beginning, but we did uh, lead some of the ways, specifically out of England, they were proponents of it before we were back in the States to abolish slavery. And I think we as Christians need to be 
uh, as these guys were saying too, verbal about these injustices is to speak. Uh, we we have the right to speak about these things, and we shouldn't just lay over and be a you know a leaf uh, and not care about these things. You know, racial inequality. We need to discuss this. This is terrible. You know, as Christians, we just can't put our head in the sand and just uh, you know, skip over it, but to be verbal about it. <coughs> I was thinking though, just in part listening to people talk about your question too. I find myself speaking differently to. Um, a non-Christian and a Christian. Yeah. yeah. You know, so I think you have to be aware of that. With, with Christians, I can roll my sleeve up a little bit and I can say, hey, listen, here's the Bible. And if you believe in the Bible and you believe and you're going to follow this, we can have a more, sometimes better debate and uh, faster reconciliation because we can get the scripture, we can discuss it. And hopefully, even though there might be some little nuances, um, as Vince alluded to, there are some nuances that we disagree with up here. But the core stuff, we're rock solid with both hand and stuff we call it. There's some open handed things that's hey, you know, whatever, agree, disagree type thing. Correct, but as a non Christian, I mean it's difficult to you know, bring up abortion for example. It's I mean okay, I mean they they don't believe what the Bible says. So you just it's kinda of like you can talk all all day and the question is well not question but as Anthony says, is perhaps you're you're really wasting your breath because you should be perhaps uh, being the salt in the life to bring, you know, Christ into their life, then you can have a better conversation, perhaps later on with some of the tenets yeah. in the Bible, and let alone politics. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. That was really good. Alright, so, quiz time. That's quiz, our postures. We'll give you guys some more time for questions too, but so will someone raise your hand and tell me what does the Bible say is the role of the government? Right here. To bring justice. Nice. A plus. <laughs> you're, get, you're getting into heaven. Sword. Um, uh, that's not what it is. Um, just to clarify. Um, all right. Second question. How? In, oh, did someone have a question? Oh, sorry. How involved should we, as individuals, be in regards to politics, and for us in particular, democracy voting? Someone wants to give their little answer. Again. So how involved in politics should we be as Christians? And voting. And voting. Yeah. So pretty involved, right? Yeah. So active. Um, finally, uh, the last quiz question I have uh, is just I, I'm curious what you guys think. So I didn't really give you guys an answer during the course of today, but I'm just curious what you guys think. But how involved in politics do you guys think the church as a whole should be? I don't know why I put that, but... Just out of curiosity to clarify, do you mean church, redemption church, or do you uh, mean church... I mean, like, as a unified front and that kind of stuff. Because I know it's a, it's a question a lot of people ask, is, you know, how, how involved the church in the whole should we be? I think sometimes, um, like, Christians as a whole, we're too afraid to speak out on a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, and we should be the ones that are speaking out mostly because we should see it, like, at sin because we, we know the Bible, we know what's wrong and what's right. So I think we should be less afraid of how people see us as calling us like, well, this is not what the Bible says. But also, like, having to do it in a way pissed so we don't, like, people <coughs> you don't have to follow that. You're, you're still sitting and stuff. So it's like a two-way street still. But yeah. Yeah. 
No, yeah, that's good. Chairman. Um, I think as a, as a whole, the church should be a little bit uh, more involved in politics just because, uh, you know, Jesus told us to uh, hold one another accountable. So he sent the disciples out in pairs and made sure that everyone was together. And it's easy for us to get secluded and then start to make thoughts and decisions on our own and those not really be of God. And so... Uh, I think the separation is one of the reasons why we don't really have people in the church together on it is because we're not really talking about politics in the church. We think that politics and the church are separate. So for for the church to become more active and to become more seen, then it's easy for us to have discussions with one another about politics and to make sure that we're making the right conclusions in our own mind. Uh, I mean, just like this today in general. So to see that the church is being active in any type type of political situation yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think uh, I think you nailed it. I really think it's. I think we should be more active as a church, at least in discussing amongst each other what what should we biblically think about certain ideas, and because I think we're very active expressing our own own opinions all the time. But I think that we as the church need to bring some of these very difficult issues together and bring them to light and. And I think it's all, you know, so like I, I have a lot of non-Christian friends that I debate with online and I try to do it in a way that they love me at the end of the day for it. And so I think that's, if I can go away and we're still friends and maybe the relationship's even better because we've gotten more, you know, intimate in like not a weird sense because we've talked about our opinions, um, that's like, that's my goal and hope that we could be closer um, shalom. and still, yeah, shalom. And so... Um, so yeah, I think yes, we need to do a better job voicing our opinions, and then we need to do a better job um, being loving in our opinions. It's such a balance, and so hard. Some of us are more this way, some of us are more that way. <laughs> I'd say involvement's. I mean, that question's really tough because I think just different people have different views of what involvement means. You know what I mean? So there are people that would say that, that the most, the the largest time that the United States Church was involved in politics would be the, like the mid-80s. You know, so moral majority was out. So you had the Falwells and you had the Robertsons and they were campaigning constantly about passing legislation to essentially create almost a theocratic government in this country. Um, and that was involvement for them. You know what I mean? Whereas there are probably some in this room who would say, eh, it didn't really work, super work out well. They kind of hate us because we did some of this stuff. Uh, and so they're like, I don't want to be part of that involvement, but I do want to have more discussions. Right? And so I think the question is tough because involvement has looked so different through the years and just in the last you know, 100 years of the church engagement in the United States and this experiment that is this country. So I think that makes it a little tough, which I think what the big important part, I think, is, is for the church to have these type of conversations um, within the church almost first, right? For us to try and figure out uh, the gaps in our stories and our understandings of what involvement looks like. Um, so, for example, you know, so Randy is forty. Oh yeah. 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 So, so Randy, almost to his sixties, is, uh, you know, uh, he he comes and has has double the life almost that I do, uh, and so he's going to have certain visions and and ideas of what political involvement looks like from his generation and where he grew up in, what his parents did, uh, than I would, right? As uh, as a 32-year-old, uh, kind of younger, uh, not as young as many of you, right? But then coming with, with an immigrant mother who came from Vietnam, and so some of the stuff that crafts my understanding of politics in that way. And so there's different things, right, that are going to form all of us. And so that's why it's so important. Like, even when the three of us, what was probably what, the last 
December, I think we started our first conversation amongst the three of us about, about politics, and it did not go nearly as well as our most, re as our most recent one. It was <laughs> like brutal. It, it was, was eight hours. It was literally eight hours. Yeah. Uh, eight hours, a box of cigars, a bottle of Pepsi. <laughs> but I think it's also to be where you know, like we said, we're supposed to be in the world. And that's involved in the world, and involved in politics, involved in the local politics, but we're not supposed to be of the world. Yeah. So that's a huge uh, distinction, number one. But all, I mean, personally, I'll watch these uh, blogs and these uh, noted pastors on the Gospel Coalition, these roundtables, and I'll be just like, that guy's so off. You know, I'd, I'd get frustrated. And they know a lot more than I do. So I'll sit back after it's over and I'll go, Okay, we've got checked. It's kind of, you know, because I'm letting my own personal emotions, my own personal biases sometimes come into, into play to flavor my opinion of what they're saying, and I'll have to kind of sit back and pray about it, and then my wife will excoriate me, uh, undo it. But, and I'll, you know, we had a conversation, she's not here today, and I was just like, yeah, I disagree. And uh, most likely she's probably right. And, you know, but, but it's, I enjoy the, the intellectual um, pursuit of it spiritually, we have these theologians around, and even in, at their little round table, let alone, you know, this mind, mind group up here, but these guys that are, again, older than me, and they'll have their little disagreements, and I just really find that um, enjoyable to listen to, and it sharp, hopefully it sharpens me, the whole, the whole you know, Proverbs, iron sharpens iron. And I think as Christians, we our takeaway there is, again, that we can have disagreements amongst ourselves, ultimately reconciliation, shalom, and at the end of the day, I mean, I come up to church every week and give you know, Dane some crap, but it's done in love. He knows it, and he is back to me in love, and, you know, I love the guy. So it's, it's a process of, uh, of uh, agreeing in, in small disagreements. See, what the Bible gives us, and this is why we wanted to just do this whole day, again, probably on the less juicy stuff, is the Bible gives us the foundation with which we have those conversations well, right? So we're able to say, so we can actually say now, like, this is what the Bible says about this issue, right? This, this is how the Bible calls this to the game. These are the verses, I'll quote them to you, right? We do know the first form of government in Israel is given to us in Exodus 18. We do know the law then came in Exodus 20. So we saw this first form of theocratic government. So we can say, like, okay, so this is kind of the way it came about, and yet God never prescribed it himself. And so potentially he's not saying that the thing we've got going in the United States of America is the best thing in this world. It's not. Like, the best thing in this world is the Garden of Eden and eventually the new heavens and new earth. And we live in the in-between, so we have to learn how to have good conversations and have them, uh, you know, in ways that constantly get, bring us back to Scripture. And so hopefully that's what a lot of this was, was like, all right, so let's set the foundation for how then we can mix it up a little bit more next week, yeah. you know, so. Um, yeah. yeah, thanks for coming, guys. I know this is a lot, this is heady. We don't usually teach classes this long or this heady, but... Um, we thought we should spend some extra time on this since it's such a big issue, since it's affecting so many um, in our church that we see. So thank you for coming. Thank you for... There's one last thing. There's a big resource I, I would love you guys all to check out. Vince will grab it. It's an amazing title, How Would Jesus Vote? Um, so I bought all these political books this summer. I started reading through them because I, I was like trying to see where I've been wrong and all this kind of stuff. And some of the resources are on this metal shelf over there. 
But uh, of all the political resources I read, this was the absolute best book. It's by Daryl Bach. I encourage everyone to read it. It's an easy read. And what's amazing about this book is it takes every controversial issue, pretty much, um, and says, okay, what are God's values about this? What are some p potential ways we could seek shalom in this area? It doesn't use the terminology of shalom, really, but just what are some good ways to solve this problem? And I think it's extremely biblical, and that's why I really like it, and I think it's extremely uh, timely for everything going on. So I cannot like emphasize this enough. When I first got this book, I thought, this is a terrible title for a book, and uh, it ended up being the best of all the political books I was reading. So make sure you get this exact one, because uh, there's a lot of books out there with this title. Um, so Daryl Bach, or how would Jesus vote? If you if someone wants to borrow this, they can. Um, that being said, well, yeah, make sure to write down questions. Yeah, if you have any questions for us. Uh, that you'll, so next week we might do like a general intro, but we're kind of kind of gonna jump right into Q and A. And so again, kind of start wrestling with uh, these issues and try essentially how do we have these 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 conversations in the midst of this biblical, uh, robust biblical understanding. So if you if you have them today. Uh, write them down, put them in one of the cups or bins around here right now, write that down quickly. Or if you just want to email us during the week after you've had more time to think about it and, and kind of pray over it, these are just some questions I want to wrestle with and really get into, and then we'll, that's what we'll do next week. So, Thanks. Let me just pray for us really quick. God, thank you for, the, for everybody in our congregation that came out today, today, listened actively and participated, and God, I just ask that um, we would engage politically and that we would do it by the power of your Holy Spirit and we would be guided by your Spirit and that we'd, be, we'd do it full of your Spirit. Mm -hmm. And so God, help us to just, um, you know, know you in the midst of all this. And so God, we need you, we love you, we thank you, and we praise your name. Amen. 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 Thanks, See you guys next week. Awesome. It should be short. I'll say that. So you just said I know. Some discussions get real crazy. All right. I got one. Got it recorded. Yeah.